Good morning, everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. We cover many different topics in this show um, and talk about different gardens and talk to garden professionals from all areas. And this morning, we are going to be talking to Charlie Nargosi about his new book, which talks about food scaping. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning, Kate. Yes, and you're up in Vermont. I'm uh, in Vermont. Correct. Yes, yes. And so let's start with maybe defining foodscaping and how you became interested in that topic. Well, foodscaping is just kind of another way of talking about edible landscaping, which is a term many people probably are familiar with. And the idea of edible landscaping or foodscaping, as I've termed it in this book, is to try to grow food plants in places in your yard, first of all, where you normally wouldn't think of planting them, uh, to have them around your yard, around the buildings, uh, close to where you're living, and also to use different varieties and different techniques and different types of plants that are attractive, too. So you're not really sacrificing any of the ornamental qualities of your trees and shrubs and flowers, but you're, in, in fact, enhancing that by growing vegetables, herbs, and fruits that will not only give you beauty due to their leaf color, their flower color, or their berry color, but also will give you that edibility, as I say, which is something to eat at the same time. So I give you in the book, I give you a lot of different ways of incorporating the plants into the landscape and then, of course, give my favorite ones as well. Yes. And I think, you know, when um, I know on your front cover, um, you've got kales and cabbages and things like that, and everything looks nice and mature. But what happens in foodscaping when you decide to harvest the cabbages? I mean, don't you get gaps in it, which you wouldn't normally find in a normal landscape? Yes, you will get gaps in it, for sure, if you have plants that will be harvested and then removed. But what I would suggest you'd want to do in that case, for example, we'll talk about the cabbages, uh, when you're starting to remove those cabbages, to have other plants on hand or be thinking in, in advance about other plants that you can use to substitute into that location. They could be edible plants, they could be edible flower plants, they could be herbs, they could be a number of different things. And the nice thing about a lot of these plants is that they're either cool season or warm season plants. So if it's a cool season plant, like a cabbage, you might be harvesting those depending on where you are in, in June or, or May or June or July. And once those are done, you have plenty of time left to plant some other things to replace that. And that idea of succession planting is one that's very common in the vegetable gardening world, and it works just equally as well in the foodscape, too. So you can have some plants and ideas in mind to replace those, the same way you probably would do if you had um, annual flowers growing. If you're in a warm climate and you're starting out with snapdragons and pansies and violas, cool season, cool loving uh, flowers, you know that by June and July those are going to fade away, and then you're probably going to have to replace those with some of the heat lovers like a verbena or a, a moss rose or lantanas. And those will do well through the summer, and then when they fade, come the cooler weather or fall, you can go back to those cool season plants. The same idea is happening in the, in the foodscape. You're just using edible plants instead of just strictly ornamental ones. And, and so this is actually incorporating, I guess, the plants actually into the landscape rather than having maybe a couple of little raised beds to one side um, that where you concentrate all the vegetables and maybe a little herb bed, maybe by, by a sunny window or something like that. This is just thro throwing the whole of the landscape into a mixed landscape with, with the vegetables, the herbs, and the flowers, and the trees. Is that right? That's right. That's correct. So you're, you're mixing everything together, 
Uh, and it has a number of different advantages. Not only does it allow the landscape to continue to look nice, because as you probably have seen, sometimes people's vegetable gardens, when they're strictly just vegetable gardens and not really uh, on top of it all the time, can look kind of ratty come mid-late summer. But when you're integrating them with other trees and shrubs and other perennial flowers and annual flowers, you're able to uh, mix and match plants that would have nice complementary colors to them and also maybe even hide some plants that maybe would be struggling or, as you were saying, might have some disease or you might not be ready to pull them out yet. So you can actually um, have some plants that would be hiding them in the landscape. And then ecologically, it makes a lot of sense to do a foodscape. No longer are you just relying on a monoculture of here's all the beans or here's all the, the tomatoes for insects and diseases to easily come in and take over and, and damage those. But you're, you're mixing it up in such a way that beneficial insects and beneficial creatures such as toads and frogs and snakes can come into the landscape, enjoy the landscape, and help you control those pests. So you have fewer pest problems in the big picture when you integrate plants in that way. And I think, you know, when, when we talk about growing, um, I guess, our own food, I mean, there, there are lots of lists out there about good food to, to grow. And I know that there is a, a dirty dozen, which kind of are, are all the contaminated ones. Uh, but a lot right. of those are imported and things like nectarines and things. Those aren't exactly something that you can automatically go and grow in your own garden. I mean, I certainly couldn't grow nectarines, and I would imagine up in Vermont, the citruses and things, which are the most contaminated. How do you address that side of it? Well, the reason for me putting the dirty dozen and the the clean 15, as I say, in there is just to give people an idea of if they're looking to have to purchase produce in any way, shape, or form, and and maybe can't grow it because it's not the right season, or they're, like you're saying, not in the right climate for them, which ones do you really, should you really focus on trying to get organic uh, varieties of those. Certainly everyone would love to grow every and, and purchase everything organically because you know it would be safer and healthier for you, but just because of the economics, you may not be able to do that. So with the Dirty Dozen, it kind of gives you the, the, fifth, the top 12 plants that are the most heavily sprayed and the most likely to have pesticide residues on them. So when you're planting your garden, you can take a look at that list try to plant as many as you can based on your climate. But then if, if it, some of these plants are not going to work in your climate, like you mentioned in nectarines up in Vermont, for example, you might um, decide to purchase those, but those would be ones you try to get organically. You would spend a little extra money for those uh, to get those organically, as opposed to if you're looking at the Clean 15, the number one on that uh, vegetable on that list is asparagus. So if you're going to buy asparagus, Sure, it would be nice to get an organically raised asparagus, but it's not as essential as some of the other things that might be heavily contaminated with pesticides. And, and the, the other list that, um, that I noticed that you have almost at the beginning are the, the superfoods, and that's kind of a, a, something that's been, I guess, branded o- over the last few years. But, but there are many of those, like you mentioned asparagus, but also there is kale and garlic, which are so incredibly easy to grow. Yes, exactly. And really, a lot of people probably already grow these, and certainly through the popular media are aware of the health benefits of many of these different vegetables and fruits. And it seems like every year there's a, the latest one that comes out for a number of years ago is goji berries. I don't remember goji berries. Uh, but that was like everybody should be eating goji berries for better health. And then pomegranates are out and blueberries. So it seems to keep changing as they discover that so many fruits and vegetables have a lot of high nutrient qualities and have a lot of antioxidants. And many of these are ones that you can grow very easily in your own garden. So it's just another reason to grow some of your own food 
uh, to get these high benefits, the high benefits of these high antioxidant crops. Uh, right in your backyard. I think, you know, when we're talking edible landscapes, I mean, at least I guess it's getting people out into the fresh air and actually doing stuff outside in a garden, which has got to be a, a health benefit like relaxing and e- exercise in general, which is a benefit. Would you call that a side benefit of what, of what this foodscaping is? Yeah, I think how we're trying to... Uh, portray it is that as you're creating more of a foodscape from that desire of growing your own food uh, around your yard, growing safe, healthy food, growing varieties that you're interested in, growing unusual things, any reason you're trying to grow some of this food, whether it be for the total culinary reasons um, for, or just for health reasons, it is getting you outside. And all of a sudden, what we often find with gardening is that once you get people outside, get them growing things, even in a few containers or a small raised bed outside their house or apartment, it starts. It becomes addictive. <laughs> you know, people start feeling like they want to do more. They've tasted a little bit of success, both literally and figuratively, and so now they want to grow a little bit more in the next year and a little bit more. And so this idea that gardening can get you outside, get you involved in the landscape around where you live, also will give you the benefits of, as you're mentioning, exercise, stress reduction, um, less anxiety. There's lots of studies that show all the different benefits both physical and psychological benefits of gardening for the gardener just by being outside, walking around in the yard every day, paying attention to things. Um, I do a lot with school kids and and school gardening, and we see often with kids, uh, the most problematic kids sometimes are the ones that take to the gardens the best, and they're the ones who had uh, behavioral problems or difficulty learning in school. But when you give them outside and get them involved with different gardens and, and taking care of plants, all of a sudden a different side of them comes out. And I think that happens with adults, too, from the stress of everyday living, from working, from families, from all different kinds of things that might be happening in your community. The garden is a little bit of an escape. It's a place where you can have a very intimate connection with nature, and you can rejuvenate yourself and revive your spirit just by being around the plant. And and is this suitable for incorporating into a front yard where I would imagine that people would traditionally have put everything in the backyard? Yeah, that's the idea with this, and it's kind of funny that when this whole movement of edible landscaping or foodscaping started uh, to become more popular, say, five, ten years ago, a lot of people would go and look at their, in a suburban neighborhood, would take out all the grass and lawn and all the ornamental shrubs in their front yard and put in an edible or foodscape, and it would look beautiful, but they often were breaking the law. There were often local zoning ordinances that say you could not do such a thing or you could not rip out all your lawn. A lawn, and some people actually uh, were challenged and had to go to court to defend themselves. It was uh, kind of ridiculous when you think about it. <laughs> uh, here are people trying to grow some of their own food to make themselves healthier and save some money, and they're being punished for it. Um, but that has kind of passed, and I think a lot of neighborhoods now are very accepting of the idea of growing vegetables right out front in the lawn, uh, mixed in with flowers and trees and shrubs. I mean, certainly that's how I was growing them in the last neighborhood I was in, a small little lot, and I just had the best place for me to grow them was in the front yard, so that's where I grew them. And one of the added benefits was that, you know, if it's in the front yard and you're working out in the garden, people walking by, they tend to be more social, they're more communicative. They might ask you, what are you growing over there? And then you can invite them in, and all of a sudden you kind of have a better feeling for your neighbors and a more community sense just because of gardens are a nice little foray into communicate, communicating with each other. And, and did you find that after seeing what you were doing, they were going to do it too? 
Well, yeah, there was. It was kind of interesting how things would pop up in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, oh, how did you you found that uh, black-colored uh, pepper plant that I was growing, and now you're growing it in your yard? Because people are always watching each other and what they're growing, what's going on in the yard, and if they see a good idea, everyone loves to copy it. So yeah, it does influence your neighbors in that way. Um, and even the ones who didn't want to grow things, they, it still was such great neighborly relations to just go over. <laughs> I had a retired gentleman living across the street by himself, and I would go over there and give him a handful of radishes oh, or lovely. a fresh tomato or something. Yeah. And it would just brighten his day and just make for a real nice feeling uh, oh, to help somebody that way. Yeah, I think, I think it would, and that's the benefit, I think, of community gardens. Um, but, you know, we need to go for our first commercial break here, but we'll be back talking more about foodscaping with Charlie Nargosi on the Master garden hour we'll be back in just a moment affordable health insurance was the promise of obamacare but for many the government mandate caused more problems than it solved this is dr elena george from medicine on call and i want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under obamacare liberty healthshare liberty healthshare bypasses doctor and hospital panels giving you the freedom to choose And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find archives at americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and now on Stitches too. You can also hear this show uh, on Monday at 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. And this morning, we are talking foodscaping with Charlie Nargosi. And we talked about um, the Dirty Dozen in the last segment, Charlie, and superfoods and great things that are fairly easy to grow. Um, but as a maybe a new homeowner has got kind of an established landscape and whatever, um, so where do they start planning? Assuming that, let's say, their backyard is grass and that's it. Um, can, where, can, where do they start thinking about getting a, an edible landscape or foodscaping that whole area? Well, the first thing to do is really do an assessment of your yard as far as where's the light levels, how much light do you get in different sections of the yard, what kind of soil do you have, are there any other factors that need to be considered for plant growth, like is this a really, a really windy spot, um, do you have the potential of you know, your neighbor has shade tree being close by, you know, other things that might uh, factor into whether the plants will survive and do well. You know, one of the homes that, actually our most recent home that we're living in now, the first thing we did when we got here is we just spent the, the whole first year kind of watching the sun's angle in the sky and where the shadows were falling because the sun in the sky changes throughout the season. So what might be a full sun location in June quite um, 
often could be a part sun or part shade location come August and September as the sun's angle is lower in the sky and it catches a little shade from a neighbor's tree or a neighbor's house or some other structure around there. So knowing how much sun you have in your yard and what sections of the yard is going to be probably a really important thing. Uh, to do. And in my book, Foodscaping, I spend a chapter just on some landscape design concepts. And one of them is to do what we call a bubble diagram, which is where you go through your yard, you kind of bubble out what kinds of plants you want in different sections of the yard based on your knowledge of the sand, the soil and the sun in those spots. So that will kind of give you a, a general idea of, oh, I can grow berries here because I have a lot of sun. But over here, maybe I have to stick with um, leafy edibles because I have less sun there. Those kinds of things. And, so once you have, excuse me? Uh, oh, yes. And I, I know that I, I did that when we, we moved in here because some areas, for instance, um, when the, the leaves aren't there, they, they appear to be sunny in the winter. Yeah. Um, and then you find that they're totally shaded afterwards. But I like that idea of kind of the bubbles and things. Um, so, so then you, you, you bubble out kind, kind of um, where, you do, where you've got sun and where you've got shade. But do you also bub- bubble out, well, this is a perimeter area. Maybe we can make a shrubbery here. Um, um, or a, a boundary area. Right. So then you, you start looking at it as far as what's the, what are the needs beyond just having food garden plants in your yard? You know, do you have a, a desire to have a boundary or a barrier area, say, in your backyard between your neighbor's house and your house? Or maybe some people would need to have a little barrier area between a, a wooded, wooded area behind them where animals have been coming in and enjoying themselves in your yard, eating some of your plants. Um, do you have a walkway along the front of your uh, yard and your landscape where you like to, to block that out and create a little bit of more privacy? So you try to start thinking about the uses of your yard and other functions. Uh, maybe you want to have a shade tree at some point where you can put a picnic bench and, and have picnics out there in the summertime. So once you kind of figure out what your, your usage of that yard is and what kind of sun and soil uh, conditions you have in that yard, then you can actually get down to the nitty-gritty of, okay, what can we plant here? And if you can do an overall plan, and it doesn't have to be a, like a landscape design that a professional would do. It could just be simply something you sketch out on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. <laughs> but it will be something you can go back to time and again. And maybe then you start making plans to do a step-by-step process of installing that foodscape. So maybe the first year you're going to do uh, some beds along the front uh, near the shrubs. It'll be some edible beds there. Or maybe you'll plant a tree in the back that'll eventually be an edible tree, but it'll also be a shade tree. Or maybe you'll start that hedgerow between your neighbor's yard and your yard and you use something like asparagus. There's some other kind of unusual edible uh, to plant in there. So you can do it on, on a step-by-step basis so it doesn't seem so overwhelming. I think people get into this and they think, oh, my God, I've got to rip everything out and put all these new plants in. It really isn't like that. And, and in my book, I often talk about replacement plants or substitute plants. So if you have something like a burning bush, you know, in the Northeast, people are very familiar with that. Um, instead of having that shrub in there or maybe you want to pull that one out because it's gotten too big or it, it is considered an invasive, uh, you can put in blueberries, which will serve a very similar function in the landscape um, beauty-wise. Um, but uh, they will certainly not have that invasive quality to them. And plus, you'll get all the, the great berries. And, and, you know, but what about maybe people that are in rental type mm-hmm. uh, places? Um, they don't have quite the, the luxury um, to dig up the ground and change the landscape per se. Um, are there any options maybe that they can use maybe with, um, maybe containers or, or would just annuals in may, maybe a small bed be um, an appropriate way of doing that? 
Yeah, if you have a small space garden, if you are in an urban setting or if you're just renting, as you mentioned, uh, you could certainly talk to the landlord about putting in, installing in a little raised bed uh, with some naturally rot-resistant wood that could easily be removed once you leave uh, and, and put right back into lawn. And sometimes that's going to be okay. If that doesn't work for them, uh, you certainly can use containers. And containers have gone through a bit of a technological revolution over the last 20 years. So now we have all different kinds of containers uh, that are made from all different kinds of materials. But one of the most important ones that I think are what we call the self-watering containers. And these are containers, whether they be a small hanging basket or a large container you can grow tomatoes in, that have a false bottom or a reservoir underneath them. And you fill up that reservoir with water, and that water naturally through osmosis goes up and keeps the soil moist. So all of a sudden you've got containers, whether it be big or small, that can kind of take care of themselves for days throughout the summer. Because that's one of the drawbacks people often find with container gardening, especially with edibles, is that they dry out fast and then the plants don't do so well. They go away for the weekend, they come back, and it's been a heat wave, and the plants are dead. So this way you're able to have more success with those containers and there's so many edibles and foodscape plants that fit well in containers, whether it be things like lettuces and carrots and beans, or even tall things like peas and pole beans can be grown in a container. And there are many dwarf varieties now that are out there. There are bush versions of winter squash that you can actually grow in a container, or bush versions of cucumbers that can grow in a container. So you can grow a lot of foodscape plants in a container as long as you have that sun conditions and you have the right exposure for them for that area. And, and I think so, some of the most uh, um, some of the containers out, out there that kind of fit on balcony railings and things like that are fun to be able to use as well because that kind of optimizes space. Um, but are we talking um, when with edibles? You mentioned blueberries and things. Those come under the shrubs. Um, what about perennials and annuals? I mean, annuals are so fussy and they take a lot of taking care of and they do have a tendency without water to um, to, yeah, to fa- fail you but what about perennials I mean th- those are good for most gardens because you you cut down on the expense of having to do it year after year um, so so are the edible elements in all the shrubs perennials and annuals yes there are and in my book I talk about the different kinds of plants within those categories that you can try so there are perennial vegetables of course I mentioned asparagus a little earlier uh, which is a classic perennial vegetable, and I saw it once used as a border plant. Uh, it, it was about, a, I think it's 50 or 70 feet long between one yard and another yard. So instead of putting in a lilac hedgerow or a privet hedgerow or a, a cedar hedgerow, they put in a hedgerow of asparagus. And what happens, of course, is once asparagus is done producing for the year, around now, uh, you let the ferns grow up, and those ferns get, can get pretty tall, five, six feet tall, and they, what they did is they put a little fence on either side of them so they wouldn't flop over. So they stayed very vertical the whole summer long, and it created a beautiful edible hedgerow all along that border area. And in the fall, of course, they turn golden color as they're uh, wrapping it up for the season, so you get a little fall foliage color too. So there are perennial vegetables like asparagus, like rhubarb. There are perennial herbs like the mints, of course. And I know people shudder when I say the word <laughs> mint sometimes. <laughs> But you have to be smart about some of these edibles that are a little more aggressive as far as where you're planting them and how you're planting them. So, for example, mint is a great plant to put down as an understory plant underneath a fruit tree that's in your lawn. 
And the thing with mint, of course, is it'll cover that area on, underneath your tree. As soon as it starts creeping into your lawn, as long as you're mowing it on a regular basis, you're going to be able to keep it pushed back a little bit. And I kind of like the smell of mint as the mower goes over it. It's kind of masks the uh, petrochemical smell in my <laughs> mower. So you can put it in places like that, certainly on hillsides, and you just let it run, let it do its thing. Or if you have it in a annual or a perennial flower garden, you can put your mint in a container and then just sink it into the ground, and that will contain it a little bit more so it won't get so wild and take over. So there are ways to kind of get around it with plants that are very aggressive. And certainly there are lots of shrubs. I mentioned blueberries. Uh, there's gooseberries. There's currants. There's all different kinds of shrubs that work well in the landscape, stay small enough, stay uh, easy to maintain in your landscape, and still give you that beauty that you're looking for. And, and so certainly th- things like the, uh, some of the, the currants, they're nice and prickly, uh, which means that the neighbor's kids don't come running into there. And they're a bit like a rose for the prickles. <laughs> Yes, they are. Some of the, the gooseberries the same way. And, and that's actually another nice usage of uh, foodscape plants is if you do have neighbor's kids coming in or the neighbor's dog coming in or a deer coming in, you can grow some of those plants along that border wherever they're coming through. And especially if you have big animals like deer, you can put a blackberry hedge back there and make it big, make it wide, six, eight feet wide so that a deer will not be very encouraged to come through that in the summer because of all the prickles on it. And if you want to do something a little smaller, the gooseberries and currants are very nice for a lower type of hedge, but they have that ability to kind of keep things out that you don't want to have in your yard. And, but is there a chance that they can get out of hand um, with all these um, plants and things? Um, that you know, I mean, okay, the deer don't, don't come in, but for instance, asparagus, I mean, can that hop out of its ni- nice little row that you've given it? Well, again, it depends upon where you put it. Uh, in the case I mentioned, the example of this gentleman who had him as a hedgerow, he was mowing all around them. So he created his little raised bed about three, four feet wide, and the rest of it was all lawn. So he was just mowing around it, and that kept him in bounds. And that's actually a nice technique to use with any of the brambles, the raspberries, blackberries, uh, black raspberries, any of those type of brambles that can tend to spread is that if you have an area around them that you can mow, even if it's just a path wide, that will kind of keep them in bounds. That will kill the ones kind of creeping out, so it kind of keeps them in the place that you want. So you do have to think about the the nature of those plants, as you would with any ornamental plant when you're planting them. You certainly know that there's a lot of aggressive perennial flowers that you don't want to just leave in your garden to take over. So the same thing with these edibles. You just have to be smart about where you're planting them in the landscape so that they can fulfill that purpose but not become a nuisance. Yeah, and, you know, certainly my my raspberry patch, you know, each year, you know, I try and mulch it. And because raspberries go on second-year wood, I'm constantly fighting, well, are you in line with that side or that line there? You know, because they tend to be... Yeah, where where are you going? Yeah, Um, but, you know, we need to go take another quick commercial break here. But when we come back, we will have more about foodscaping with Charlie Nargosi. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of Charlie's favorites for the foodscaping idea. The Master Gardener Hour will be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. 
Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking foodscaping with Charlie Nargosi. And we talked in general, Charlie, about maybe getting some of these landscape elements in place one by one and not maybe um, taking the cabbages out or whatever. Um, so um, I guess you, when you've been doing this, this is your second landscape that you've done. Other, what I would call favourites, that you, you get to a new landscape and you think, gosh darn, it hasn't got this, I'm going to go out, that's my first call to the, the, um, the nursery, I'm going to get one of those to put in. Yeah, well, there's certainly, uh, in my climate, kind of the, the kind of plants that you really just go to, and those would be things like the blueberries, for example. And the nice thing about blueberries is that you can get ones that are, are ground covers, the low-bush blueberries that would work really well in the front of a border or work well underneath as an understory plant underneath a, a, a limbed-up tree. Um, really uh, tenacious little plants that seem to do well as long as you get the soil conditions correct for them. Their pH needs to be low. Uh, so there's low-bush blueberries, and then, of course, there's the high-bush blueberries. And up here we have the northern high-bush, but people in the south and the southeast know about the southern high-bush and the rabbit-eye blueberries, similar plants that can get large, five, six, seven feet long, tall at times. Um, those are great plants to put as a foundation plant or to put in a mixed island bed with other shrubs and other trees. But there's also the uh, half-high blueberries, and these are ones that grow maybe two or three feet tall. And what's nice about them is they're perfect for planting underneath a window or in a small little perennial garden area, something that's not going to be so big and dominating of the landscape, but still will be big enough to give you some berries to enjoy. So blueberries are definitely a go-to plant. There's not a lot of pests on them. As I mentioned, if you keep the pH below 5, which is fairly acidic, um, they seem to do well, and, of course, giving them well-drained soil and a lot of moisture. They like a lot of mulch and a lot of moisture. Um, they'll grow pretty well. And people will often think, well, I can't really put them in with other shrubs or other perennials because the soil will be so acidic those other perennials won't do well. Well, in fact, what happens is you're really acidifying the area underneath the blueberry bush. And you go out a foot or two, and it, the soil is not that acidic, and other plants do okay around them. And if you wanted to mix and match plants with similar uh, growing conditions, rhododendrons and azaleas, for example, would do well uh, next to a blueberry because they like that kind of acidic soil. So for shrubs, I think blueberries are kind of a no-brainer. We mentioned gooseberries and currants before. 
uh, the thing I like about those is that you only need one bush. You don't need to have a couple different bushes to get fruit out of them, unlike a number of other fruits. So you can pop in a gooseberry here or a currant there, and they're very low maintenance. They've got a couple little problems with uh, worms and sometimes with disease, but in general, they don't require a lot of time to start producing fruit. You can put a, a bush in there, and within a year or two, you're getting some nice quantity of fruit out of them. Yeah, and I, I love the, the currants and things. So those are usually um, the first things that, that I put in. Um, and, and blueberries, to me, that, I mean, you, you mentioned um, the, the, the burning bushes. Um, when we moved to this house, I mean, they hadn't been pruned for about 10 years. They, they were maybe 10 foot, foot high and, and 5, 6 foot wide. I mean, they, those were horrendous. <laughs> and I think, think as soon as we unpacked, I found the chainsaw and got rid of them. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> Unfortunately, Unfortunately, it was in gravel, so I couldn't exactly go out and put blueberries in. But some of those, those um, smaller half-high blueberries, they can actually be grown in containers, right? Yes, you can. You can get varieties like Top Hat and North Sky that only grow a foot or two tall, and you can grow them in containers. So if you're thinking that you don't have enough room to grow berry-producing shrubs because of the small space you have, you might want to look at getting some large containers. Now, in uh, many places of the country, say zones 6 and 7 and warmer, you really wouldn't have to worry too much about them through the winter. You might want to insulate them a little bit, put them in a protected location outside. But if you're in a colder area, zone 5, certainly zone 6 and, and, and colder than that, uh, you're probably going to want to bring them into an unheated garage or an unheated basement somewhere where they'll be protected in the winter, uh, where the temperatures won't go much below 20 degrees or so. Uh, that way they're more likely to survive, and often you can put them in a the container, let the leaves drop, just kind of leave them there all winter, and then come spring as they start budding up again, bring them back out, give them a little water and fertilizer, and, and they'll bounce right back. And, and do they generally produce as much as the ones in the ground that are the normal side? Because from what I remember, blueberries are kind of, um, there are a limited um, number of weeks that they will produce. Yeah, there is a limited number of weeks, and any time you put a plant in a container versus in the ground, you're not going to get the same size production. But if that's your only option, it's certainly worth trying. Uh, if you do have room, what's nice to do with blueberries is to have early, mid, and late season varieties. So these will be varieties that would start producing in early July, and then you may have some varieties that produce into September and October. That way you've extended your blueberry season for a number of months so you can have that many more blueberries to eat and freeze. And, and uh, so, so if we have um, blue, blueberries, um, and I know that perennials are, are great in the garden, and, and rhubarb you, we mentioned, but one of the problems with rhubarb, and I love rhubarb, you, you get the, the harvestable bit, and then they, they've got, they're not exactly pretty leaves. And then, then you know, they, they get that big stalk, and okay, the flower is beautiful, but they, they spend a lot of the year being rather ungainly and large and not particularly attractive. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, some, some people may have the same opinion about things like uh, plume poppies and uh, rhodesia or rhodesia and a number of other kind of big leafed plants that you have in your uh, landscape. So, um, I kind of like the look of the rhubarb because I think it has a, a tropical, subtropical kind of leaf look to it, and the flower stalk certainly looks attractive when it's there. But with a lot of these foodscape plants, and, and why I talk about mixing them in with other plants, especially ornamental plants, is that you can put them in a place where they can really be showcased when they're looking good. 
And then by the time they're kind of ready to pass by, certainly with rhubarb by early to midsummer, they're, they're getting a little tired looking. You might have other plants that would be taking over that area. Maybe you have bee balm that you planted around there, and they'll kind of fill in that area around there, and the plants are tall enough that they'll shade out or those block the view of your rhubarb that was in the back. So you can have these different layers going on in your garden. So you're not having to try to figure out, what do I do with that ugly-looking blue bar back there? You can have edible plants that maybe you will just uh, block out the view of it. And, and I must admit, I mean, I, I do like the, the rhubarb for most of its phases. Um, but um, you, you mentioned asparagus, and we've got rhubarb as perennials. Are there any other common perennial um, edibles that, that, um, that you, you think are, are good for gardens? Well, a lavender is certainly a, a beautiful plant to grow, and I know a lot of people can grow that. And if you're in a warm enough climate, uh, rosemary is a beautiful plant. And certainly if you've gone down out to California and some of the warmer places around the country, you've seen hedges of ro- rosemary, which I'm always jealous when I see, uh, that they grow it as a landscape plant. So there are plants like that that can certainly be used uh, in warmer climates, and even lavender can be grown in my climate up here, a Zone 5 climate in Vermont. Um, getting the right varieties, of course, is very important for that, and protecting them through the winter with a little bark mulch or wood chips piled over them in late November is a good way to get them through the winter. But these are perennials that will come back year after year and will actually become nice ornamental pieces in your landscape. And, and I guess most herbs would come under that category, things like the sages, uh, particularly the different multicolored colored uh, leaves that, that the sage has. Yeah, the tricolor sage is a real pretty one, um, and there's a couple different versions of that now, some with more golden-colored leaves, some with the tri, the, the pink, white, and green-colored leaves. And so when you're looking at, it's another good point to bring up about foodscape plants when you're looking at types of plants, you know, look at varieties of the, of the flower or the vegetable or the shrub or tree that you're trying to grow that has something a little more unusual characteristics to it. For example, there are nasturtiums, and everyone loves nasturtiums. They're a great foodscape plant with their peppery leaves and flowers, and they're very bright and cheery. But there are varieties of them, like Alaska, for example, that have variegated leaves. So even when they're not in full flower, or maybe they're in between their flowering cycles, the leaves are attractive to look at. So it's a nice plant to add into your yard to have that ornamental quality even when the flowers aren't blooming. Yeah, and I think think the same could be said for um, some of the annual basils, um, the purple yeah. ones particularly. I mean, those have beautiful flowers on them, oh, per- yeah, perfect the, for the front the front garden. <laughs> yeah, the, the Siam Queen is a beautiful one, the Thai basils with the purple stems and the, and the purple flowers on them. Uh, I know, of course... When you're growing basil, you want to snip off those flowers to get more leaf production. But in some cases, maybe you want to plant a few extra plants so you'll cut down on your leaf production, but overall, but you can let some of them go to flower and really enjoy them. Um, I do the same thing, actually, with fennel, bulbing fennel, Florence fennel. Um, I plant extra ones of those because I love that seed head that comes up when it goes to seed. It's big. It's umbiliferous. It's, um, beneficial insects love it. It's just loaded with beneficial insects, and it really kind of towers in the garden. It kind of floats around on the landscape, almost like an ornamental allium would do. So it's kind of nice to have plants like that and kind of think about having some extras of those to let them go beyond the, the truly best edible stage so they can have that ornamental quality in the garden. And, and what about uh, ground covers? Um, I know that there are some creeping times and things like that that can be used as ground covers, but gen- generally for culinary uses, I prefer the up, upright ones. Um, are, there, are there many edible ground covers that you would um, think are good for um, your garden? 
Yeah, there are certainly ones, and the one that first comes to mind, of course, is strawberries. Now, strawberries like a full sun location, but if you have the front of a border area where it has a lot of sun, or uh, keep mentioning these trees that you know, even large trees that have been limbed up pretty high, so that light is coming in underneath the canopy of that tree and providing a lot of light underneath it, uh, where you would normally have a ground cover, you can get away with growing some uh, strawberries. In those cases, I might suggest growing the alpine strawberries as opposed to the regular running strawberries. The alpine strawberries are closer related to the wild strawberries, so they're a tougher plant. Uh, they're a bunching plant, not one that sends out runners, but they'll spread just by getting larger and larger crowns. And there's a number of different kinds of varieties that have fruits from white to yellow to red to them. And they produce all season long. So uh, it's a nice little plant to have in a landscape, and you can put it as a ground store, ground cover plant and under the understory of a tree. Um, but I also have some smaller fruit trees, like some cherry trees, where I put the running strawberries under them. So I've got a strawberry patch underneath a cherry tree. And it's just a, a nice way to have two edibles in one location so you're saving space. And they're blooming around the same time, so you're getting uh, more of an attraction for the bees to come in and pollinate the flowers. And it's actually a very nice piece of the landscape. And all these pieces of the landscape talk to each other in a, a pleasant way. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> So, so you don't get any, any, I mean, I know there are some vegetables that don't like other vegetables, like beans and onions, I think it is. Um, so it's a bit, generally you've found that there aren't arg arguments where something just doesn't do very well because it's got this other thing with it. Yeah, I haven't seen that really happen other than if it doesn't have the right environmental conditions. You know, it doesn't have enough sun or it doesn't have the right kind of soil. Um, or the plant, one's much more aggressive plant than the other one, you know, those kind of things that normally would happen with any plants, not just foodscape plants. Um, but keeping in mind the kind of plant you have, uh, you can actually kind of pair them so that they can be complementary. Yeah. Um, and I guess, guess we need to take um, our final commercial break here, Charlie. Um, but okay. come back, everyone, listen to more about foodscaping with Charlie Nargosi, and we'll let you know more about the book itself, where to find it, and thing, things that are in there, because it's a, it's a beautiful book. Uh, we will be right back. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
I hope you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking to Charlie Nargosi about um, his new book, The Foodscaping, Practical and Innovative Ways to Create an Edible Landscape, also known as Foodscaping. And, and this is a Cool Springs um, production, is that right? That's correct, Cool Springs Press. And it, it came out early summer, are we right on that? It came out in the middle of May, yes. It's available in the normal outlets you might think of. <laughs> um, Amazon, of course, is the number one uh, outlet that's out there that will have this book available for sale. And if you wanted to get it through my website, um, you can go to gardeningwithcharlie.com. That's gardeningwithcharlie.com. And, of course, look at the tab that says Writing, and you'll see all of my books. This is, I have five or six different books that I've uh, written. Um, they're all there, and you can just click them on, and it'll go to an Amazon or some other site where you can actually order it. And, and what I like, like about this, it's a soft cover book, um, but, yeah. but it's got lots of pictures almost on every, every page. And so, some of the, um, some of the pictures, I, I'm looking at one right now that's got a, a beautiful little patio, and it, it's got kind of a, a nice formal little boxwood hedge, um, or, or it may not be boxwood, I can't actually tell here, but it's fil- filled with cabbages, and then there's another one with different colored lettuces. And that's something yeah. I think we forget having the supermarkets finally getting off um, iceberg. Um, lettuce comes up around in, in reds and greens and mottled colors, and it's a really attractive plant. It's a beautiful plant. In fact, all of the greens, I really strongly encourage everyone to grow different kinds of greens in their edible landscape or their foodscape, uh, not be, only because they're beautiful to look at, but they're healthy for you too. And we probably are very familiar with the bright lights versions of the Swiss chards that are out there, uh, very colorful petioles to them. But I love kale, for example. And we have some nice images in the book of different varieties of kale. In fact, that cover image that you were talking about right at the beginning of the show, that's a red boar kale that has kind of burgundy-colored stems and leaves. And what's beautiful about kale is that, this variety in particular, is that it gets a deeper burgundy color as it goes into the fall. So depending on where you live, you could have this plant as almost like a perennial in your garden. I mean, eventually it will die. Um, but in our landscape, even in Zone 5 here, I've had kale surviving temperatures um, into December and even January sometimes, depending on the severity of our winter. So yeah. it's a beautiful landscape plant, and it's a kind of plant that will grow and give you nice stature in yeah. the garden, too. But there's some beautiful varieties of that red boar kale. The one that's right next to it on the cover of the book is a, a, the dinosaur kale that a lot of people are familiar with through the grocery stores, the Lacinata kale. And uh, that's a great one to grow in the landscape. It has blue-green strap-like leaves to it. Uh, so a lot of the greens are, are really beautiful to have in the landscape, and that's why we try to have a lot of photos in this book to really give you the, the images that you're looking for. So when we talk about a variegated leaf, what does that look like? We actually show you some varieties of those types of things and, and how to have colorful trees in your landscapes or shrubs in your landscapes and show you the different combinations you can use. Yeah, and, and you've also got some that are hanging on, on um, sort of fences and th- things to show how, how you can use that type of thing as well to kind of to, to decorate a, a boring fence. Um, yeah, we have a lot of, uh, I talk a lot about climbers, and so it could be climbers like grapes or hardy kiwis that would go up a pergola or an arch or a strong fence and become almost a shade structure for you because they grow so rampantly 
and they can shade out an area, and you can have fruit if you take uh, good care of them. Uh, but you can also do that with annuals, too, like uh, pole beans, for example. Scarlet runner beans are one of my favorite pole beans, type of pole bean, because they, they grow up a fence, they grow up some poles, they provide a nice green wall by midsummer. They have beautiful orange-colored flowers, and then the, the actual pods themselves, if you pick them when they're really young, you can eat them like a green bean, like a regular string bean. If you let them mature, they produce these multicolored seeds inside the pods, which are really cool. <laughs> they're like pink and black mottled color to them. And you can save those beans. You can have They're great to grow with kids because they're big. They're easy to, to use. You can cook them and eat them that way. So um, having some of these climbing plants in your landscape is really nice, too. So, so that you get the multi-layer effect, which is great, yeah. great for um, animals and things, um, you know, when you've got different layers, which is fun. Um, and I guess... Um, you said that we can get this from your website, but it's not a direct, it has, it's just a link to Amazon. So they couldn't order a signed copy from your website then? Unfortunately, no. But if someone emailed me and uh, we could probably work it out, I could, uh, you know, they could pay for it and I could mail it to them or some kind of nature like that um, if they really wanted a signed copy. Or, of course, they could try to take a look on my website and see where I'm speaking next. I do speak all around the country at various flower shows, master gardener conferences, trade shows, garden clubs. Um, so if you're in the area where I might be doing a speaking engagement, even if you don't have time to come hear me speak, you can just stop by and I'd be happy to sign your book. Uh, and, and so most of these are, are open, to the, open to the public, the list that's on your website, is that right? Yes, most of them are. Exactly. Yeah, and and I think that's very organised to have them on a web website like that. It's a simple link, um, and is it just pre- predominantly foodscaping that you talk about at all these different places, or do you have other topics um, that maybe people could choose from? Oh, I talk about all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a penchant for edible plants, so the foodscaping idea. I've also written vegetable gardening for dummies. Uh, which is one of the dummy series books, so I talk about vegetable gardening. I've written urban gardening for dummies, and I talk about small space gardening, not just edibles, but all kinds of plants you can grow in small spaces from containers to vertical plants um, to hanging baskets like you were mentioning in the show. Uh, And I also can talk about ornamentals and flowers, too. I I talk about annual flowers, new varieties of those, um, hardy roses for cold climates, organic lawn care and general organic gardening too for pest control without having to resort to using chemicals yeah and and so if somebody maybe um they wanted to invite you to the garden club or event um can they go to your website is there a contact form or something there yes there is so if you go to my website and you go to uh, the area that says meet charlie and you just kind of go down on there you can see that there there is an option for hiring charlie and you can uh, click that on, and there's a form that you would just fill out, and that would give me all the information. It sends an email to me. And in fact, on that page, there's a little snippet of me speaking. I forgot which talk that was and where it was, but <laughs> it gives you a little flavor of what my speaking style is like and what I look like, too. So if you're interested in having me come to your event, I'm happy to do that, and you can send me an email. We can work it all out. Okay. And, and you also do garden consulting um, and garden coaching. How does that, that work, and can they um, use that same form for that? Yes, there is actually a form for that as well. And that would be garden coaching or consulting where um, if it's in the area, the Vermont area, Vermont, New Hampshire, 
uh, New York area, it's probably uh, feasible for me to do that. It's really meant to be more of a local thing in my area. But I will come out to your yard and we'll talk about your landscape and talk about ways of integrating different kinds of plants into that landscape. Uh, what would be the best options for a certain area that you're having trouble growing things? Uh, maybe you're learning how to prune something and I can show you a little demo about how to prune your, your shrubs. Um, what kinds of plants would do best under what kind of conditions, you know, give you lists of plants that you can choose from. So it's kind of an in-between service. It's not really a landscape design where I come up with a plan for you, but it also is not where I come in and actually do the landscaping for you. So it's more of a, a suggestion, an evaluation, and a consultation with what's going on in your yard, where you should focus on, what plants should be kept, which ones should be pulled out, um, and what substitutes you should use. Yeah, um, and I, I think, you know, garden co coaching is such a fun thing to, for people to experience because you don't actually do the pruning. You, you maybe show how to do it, but uh, then, then you show people how to do it so that they, they learn this, these skills at the same time um, rather than hiring somebody to, to prune the rhododendron or the whatever. Yeah, the whole idea is really education. And it's trying to educate someone as far as the kinds of plants they should be growing in that landscape based on the sun and the soil and where they live, but also in how to take care of them properly. So if I can teach somebody how to prune a rose so that they can do it effectively year after year, they're going to be more likely that they're going to be successful with it. Yeah. And, and so, so we use your web website for, for contact for all those and, and for that list of um, where you're talking and mm -hmm. th things like, like that. Um, is, is maybe where you're talking the best place maybe to pick up a copy of this, this book? Do you sell, sell the books at those talks as well so they could get a signed copy then? Yes, I do. I always bring my books to, to my talk, so I will have not only this book, but maybe some of the others, depending on the topic. So I would suggest if you're interested in coming to one of my talks and uh, you're not in that local area, just to email me and, I, and say that you want to have a Foodscape book signed or something like that, and I'll make sure I bring it along. Uh, also in there, I, I do uh, tours as well. And this year I'm doing a tour of Sicily. It's going to be a food and garden tour of the island of Sicily, and we're leaving the end of September for about nine days. And if you want more information about that tour, that is also under that Meet Charlie tab in the gardeningwithcharlie.com website. And that will give you all the specifics of where we're going, what we're doing, looking at private gardens, public gardens, uh, doing cooking classes. Uh, we'll be going to uh, sp food festivals. There's a pistachio festival that happens on the slopes of Mount Etna. Uh, we'll be doing that as well. So it's usually a lot of fun. It's a small group. We try to keep it 20 to 25 people. Uh, so it's a nice, intimate experience, and you'll have certainly an organized tour going on, but you'll have free time to wander to. Wow, that sounds like a really great tour. I'm, I'm envious. You should come. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I wonder how, how you all organize. Did you have to go over there several times? to, to I mean, that, that would be such a hard thing to do, to go over there, find all these gardens. <laughs> well, it, it's a combination of, of that and talking with people and having local folks. I mean, it's, it's definitely a combination. You know, it would be hard to do that for each one of these tours. I, I usually do a tour a year. Last year we were in Barcelona and uh, Provence, and this year we're in Sicily, and then 2016 we'll be in England. Oh, we'll very, very going nice. Going to the Hampton Court Flower Show and then eventually going up to Wales and seeing some gardens up there. 
Ooh, in the black country, um, the black hills, yeah. Yeah, northern Wales. Yeah, yeah uh, just be- beautiful landscapes up, up yeah. there and, and be- beautiful scenery. It's almost like the, um, the northwest with the, the, the really dark mountains um, and, be- and beautiful seasides as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. You know, some of these gardens are ones I've been to. Some are new to me too, so it's always a kind of an adventure and a surprise for me to do that. And, and one of the things I always try to do with these tours is to set up a private garden tour with someone who's just a home gardener, just a master gardener or someone who has a nice garden, but not over the top, not something that you'd have to be an expert gardener to maintain or have gardeners come in and take care of it. Um, But the the idea with that is that you get to talk to someone who's just a local, regular gardener, like a lot of the people who come on these trips with me, to just kind of see how they grow things and what it's like and the challenges. And it's such a nice uh, intimate little experience, and I try to do at least one of those in each one of the trips. That sounds great, and all that information is on the website. Um, yes. Well, and, yeah, I, I guess we're we're pretty much at the end of the show, Charlie. I, I want okay. to th- thank you for for being a guest. It's a it's a great topic, and and I love the idea of the uh, the tours. Oh, good. Well, thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. Um, So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.